Reading today out of the New Living Translation, Luke 5, starting with verse 33. One day, some people said to Jesus, Well, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, probably with a sigh. Do the wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He, hmm. Hey, Kelton. Hit forward for me. Thank you, sir. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment, for then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. Next slide. And no one puts new wine into wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new. The old's just fine, they say. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your day. These are your people. This is your service Lord, open our hearts. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth. May your name be glorified and may us be, Lord, let us be colored even more in shades of you in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, change can be hard. Agreed? Agreed. I mean, even when the old is worse, when you know that it needs replacement, well, the trouble is the old is comfortable. You know how to navigate around the old, work around its problems. The new is kind of frightening because you never know what the new will bring with it. It's new. So sometimes we hang with the old instead. Now, it doesn't surprise anyone that churches have a hard time with the topic of change, that individual people have a hard time with the topic of change. And as a matter of fact, it's been years since I read any of these. I think I first read these at a church at the dawning of the internet, when people were sending these back and forth to each other in emails instead of on Facebook. So, how many does it take to change a light bulb? Some of you will get the first one. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. God has predestined when the lights will be on and off. How many atheists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but they remain in darkness. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One, to cast it out. Two, to catch it when it falls. The other seven, to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Also ten. One, to change the bulb. And nine, to say how much they like the old one. 
How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? At least 15. One to change the bulb, three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. Hey, that could also be Methodist. How many independent fundamentalists does it take to change a light bulb? Now, my Bible don't say nothing about light bulbs. I hope I didn't hear a, someone go crunch. Um, how many, here's where the crunch happens. How many evangelicals does it take to change a light bulb? Evangelicals do not change light bulbs. They simply read out the instructions and hope the light bulb decides to change itself. Ooh, ooh. And finally, how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Unclear. Whether your light bulb is bright, dull, or completely out, you are still loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, or a tulip bulb. A church-wide lighting service is planned for Sunday, August the 19th. Bring the bulb of your choice and a covered dish. Someone knows us. <laughs> oh, and if you went, well, I am offended. You notice comedy is offensive when it kind of hits too close to home? Yeah. Um, sometimes we are kind of like the person in the joke. Well, change? What change? Well, the Pharisees and the people of that day were just as reluctant to change no, the battery is completely dead. Kelson, I'm just going to start saying next slide, okay? So, thank you. They were just as reluctant to change. Jesus was asked why he and his disciples did not basically look like the others that had come before. Well, you're not doing what they did. You're not acting like they did. Basically, their practice or their form had changed, and Jesus used this very traditional, in whatever faith you're in, question to communicate that in Him the new had come. And He sort of did it in three little stages. We're reading this out of Luke. It is also in Matthew and Mark. You can find it there. First of all, he used the wedding party, which is still is going to make uh, the new Mr. and Mrs. Peyton smile. The wedding party, it's really hard to fast when you have a party going on, when you have a celebration because there's good, wonderful things happening. The groom is now with us, and we, uh, while he is here, we are going to celebrate. Now, this hooks up with all of this wedding imagery that we find throughout the New Testament. Like when Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come and receive you back unto myself. That's not just talking about God, Christ, returning, rapture, and all of that. That's also something that the people then would have understood as a reference to the Jewish wedding practice. The bride hears the groom is coming. Oh, another parable and people trim their lamps and get ready. The groom comes, takes the bride to the service, then takes her away to the honeymoon suite that has been added to his father's house in which there are now rooms for the two of them to live. In the New Testament, you hear that the husband and wife, that relationship is significant in this way. In some way, it represents the union of Christ with His church. We, as the body, are called not just the body of Christ, but the bride of Christ. So it is 
to be expected that he would at first go to this imagery of the waiting party and that now the groom is with them, I am with them, they are celebrating now, there will come a time of fasting and of mourning soon. Then he went into, uh, next slide, this patching of the old garment with the new patch. He went into the, there it is. By the way, that is a 1,700-year-old tunic that they just discovered somewhere in Norway. So that one has some years on it. Now, the imagery here is this. When he's saying a new patch, he's talking about cloth that has not yet been in the wash. What happens when you put the cloth into the wash for the first time? At least in those days, it would shrink. By the way, anybody ever had a large that turned into a small because you turned the, you know, the, Lori's saying yes. Okay. Uh, I didn't remember that. You gotta remind me of that story, hon. Um, because that new patch would shrink. Now imagine you've got the old tunic, the new patch on it, the new patch is going to shrink. You go to watch it, the new patch shrinks, and it's going to rip all the material around it. That was the imagery that Jesus was giving, and he was basically saying this, I believe, it's about the form, it's that look. If you think I'm just here to put a new shine on, to add a little bit to, just to kind of spiff up the old way of doing things, it's not that. Because if I try that, it's just going to rip the whole thing asunder. No, we're coming to do something that is new. And you should expect it to look different. And then he gets to, Kelton, next slide, the image of wine and the wineskins. Now on the left on this image you have an older wineskin on the right, the newer one. Mostly we can tell because of the color of them, but here's how it worked back in the day. You would make a wineskin out of the skin of goats, you would have to have this new wine skin for the new wine because they would pour the new wine in. It is still fermenting. So you pour it in, put the top on, seal it. What happens? The fermenting still goes on and it starts to bubble out and balloon. There has to be some flexibility there, otherwise it would burst. So if you take that, now let's imagine taking an empty old wine skin. Well, I finished this one. Okay. I'm going to fill it up with new wine, and then you seal it up and are letting it age. Well, it starts to ferment, but the old wine skin has no more stretch left in it. So what happens? Pop. And it destroys the skin, and the new wine is lost. So if we were going to put this very literally, a friend of mine said, sometimes I need to get out the big crayons, preacher. So, okay, if... Um, this service is dedicated in uh, some respects to that certain friend. He knows who he is. Um, if you want to think of it this way, imagine it like this. The old wine being the law. The old wine being the forms of it. The old wine being God working through the law, prefiguring Christ. The old wineskin being the traditions of the Pharisees and the elders and the things that had built up around the law. The new wineskin being the new things, the new way Jesus would be doing it because instead of just the law, 
You're also going to have the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of grace. Now we know that in the New Testament that wine has a lot of uses as far as its meanings. Let's see. Um, in the New Testament, by the way, literally that means the new covenant. Right? Okay. The wine is Jesus' blood of the new covenant poured out for us and for forgive poured out for you and for the forgiveness of many. This blood of the new covenant in communion that says this is Jesus being poured out for us, for our forgiveness, for our new life, for the washing away of our sins, for our redemption. That is one way that wine is used. Wine was also, of all things, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding, there's the wedding again in Cana, turning water into wine, as Mark Lowry, no relation, said, just to keep the party going, I guess. His first miracle being that of turning water into wine. And by the way, we're reading out of the Gospel of Luke. What other book did Luke write in the New Testament? Anybody? Acts. Luke wrote, well, the Gospel of Luke is part one, the Acts of the Holy Spirit within the church or the Acts of the Apostles is part two. Now Luke knows of Jesus' parable on the new wine. He's written it down. Isn't it interesting that in Acts 2.13, the apostles have received the Holy Spirit. They're there talking. People are understanding them from all over. And some are saying, this is amazing. And others are saying, What? Oh, they are drunk on new wine. Why did Luke include that statement? Well, obviously, again, there's that linkage of the Holy Spirit to this image of the new wine that the old wineskin cannot contain. We read that, we're supposed to think, oh yeah, let's go back to Luke chapter 5 and read what Jesus said about new wine. So we can think in shorthand, if we will, about this linkage between the new wine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that helps us in applying this to us because we shouldn't expect anything in the New Testament to be recorded there just and only just as a record of Jesus's winning the argument over the Pharisees. Everything that is included is also there to help us see what God's desires are for us, what His claim on our hearts is, what His request for our behaviors to be, what He wants us to be transformed into. So looking at that old and that new wine skin. Look at the old one first. The old wineskin, the old way that the Pharisees were doing things, filled with the old wine, which everybody kind of says, oh, I like that one better. Again, it's comfortable, it's good. You think, hey, it's got some age on it. It feels nice. <coughs> they did not like the change that Jesus was bringing. Do you notice they wanted the Messiah? But they wanted the Messiah to be their conception of him. This isn't in the outline, but it's just jumped in here. So 
have we ever fallen victim to the tendency to want to put God in our box? To tame him, to domesticate him. Anyone ever read the Chronicles of Narnia and one of the children asks, well, is Aslan this representative, this Christ figure in that novel? Is he safe? Oh, goodness, no, child. He's a lion. Of course, he's not safe, but he's good. That old wineskin felt very, very comfortable to the people of that day. They could not really readily understand the idea of You mean the Gentiles are now going to be a part of this new covenant? They're the enemies. I'm supposed to love my enemy and pray for them? No, I'm supposed to have my knife by my side ready for the revolution. See, in every age and in every place, including first century Jerusalem, The gospel, the new wine, the Holy Spirit has come in and said, okay, to be incarnated in this place and in this time and to be the gospel of Christ, things are going to have to look a little different. The forms may change. By the way, don't worry, the gospel always does remain the same. It is still the new wine of Christ Jesus. But I will guarantee you that, for instance... Church in America and church in Africa do not look the same. They don't sound the same. It's probably not at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning in Africa. It's just probably not. But I have the feeling and the expectation that if and when I do go there and I'm in a service where I cannot understand what people are saying, that something within me will still say, this is home even when things are being done in ways that I'm not familiar with. Because that same blessing of Christ is upon them. See, the Pharisees were stuck in the way they were trying to serve God rather than stuck on God. You remember Paul killing all the Christians because he was doing God a favor? That's something we're always in danger of finding ourselves doing. Doing something in His name that is not His desire. Oh, (laughs) and I like to bring this up every so often too. I mean, change is hard, but you know that once upon a time, a pipe organ was considered a horribly disruptive instrument to bring into church worship, right? You knew that? Well, now you do. Oh, and by the way, in this 500th year of the Reformation, you do remember that people died, were put to death, so you could have the Bible in a language other than Latin. You remember that, right? Sometimes we have to see if the... uh, if we're trying to put the new wine in the old skin... That doesn't last long. But second, in this modern age, I think it's kind of too easy to be distracted and disconnected from the source of that new wine. Maybe we could call that, oh, I don't know the vine. 
We can get busy, we can get burned out, we can get weighed upon, we can have so many things, dear Lord, turn off the news. We can have so much going on. What did that boss mean when he said that? I mean, there's so much. Please, if you get a cold and you've got a symptom, don't go on the internet looking up what it might be. You will convince yourself you have five hours left to live if you're not careful. Spend some time in devotional prayer instead. Oh, dear Lord, if someone... (laughs) Okay, I'm going to be in meddling now. If someone calls you up, oh, sister, I cannot believe what that person did at church today. Now, I didn't say the pastor. It could be any of y'all. I can't believe what happened. Do you know? Please don't go, I know. Spend some more time praying about the situation. Churches need to have done that over the last 2,000 years. I think you see evidence of that in Corinthians. See, here's the thing. We cannot neglect our relationship with God and yet expect to remain okay like any other relationship. Husbands, wives, don't neglect your relationship. Otherwise, eventually there is a problem and you find yourselves over at the admin building with the short little preacher saying, okay, let's talk. Same thing with your relationship with God. Let me just give you another image. Imagine that you have a new wine skin and you have an order for new wine. You're a supplier. But you've run out of new wine, so you've got to make up the difference. So you decide, I'm going to fill one of these new wine skins with old wine. So you pop the top of the other one, pour it in, pop the, okay, and you're fine. Now, what's going to happen as they take that order? Let's say there's ten of them, and they hang them up and let the wine age. What's going to be happening to the new wine skins with the new wine? Well, the fermentation is going to keep going. They'll start getting larger. They'll be stretched. They'll be growing. They will take on a firmness and a solidity. None of them will. But that one that has the old wine in and is just trying to look like the new, it will still be hanging there, limp and formless, not growing, not stretching. Does any of this start to make sense? And dear Lord, I know, believe me, I know, there are times when we have dryness in our walk with Christ. This world is not our home. We will have to deal with the problems and the cares and the worries of this life. The trouble is, are we going to make our home there and not retreat into the presence of the Father? And Trust me, you need to retreat into the presence of the Father. I seem to remember God's only Son retreating every so often to be in the presence of the Father. Correct? So, questions for the day. And I'll just ask them as unto the Lord. Lord, have I become, and oh, this is dangerous, for any of us, including those of us behind the pulpit. Lord, have I become more in love with doing church than I am in love with you? Has it been too long since I humbled myself before you? 
and let your will be done in me and through me? Have I started to substitute my best guess, my best judgment for an honest seeking after your will? Or how about this one? Lord, am I just going through the motions? Have I started to replace our relationship with other things, maybe really good things and worthy things to do, but things which will not recharge, renew, restore my connection to you? Am I trying so very hard to be the image of this person, this new wineskin, that I know that you want me to be, but inside I feel empty. I kind of feel like I'm running in place. Now here's the leading question. Lord, am I tired of being just good enough? Am I tired? of being tired in my relationship with you? Am I ready to actually set aside, to actually live like Jesus lived by setting aside time to get away from everything but you? Another little piece of meddling. When Jesus went alone to pray, as was often the case. Number one, don't you know he thought, man, there's a lot of people I could be healing instead of going off to pray. But he still chose to go to be alone with the Father. Second of all, and I ask this with love and the fingers pointing back at me, don't we think Jesus would have turned off his cell phone while he was on the mountain with the Father? Man, that's hard to do nowadays, isn't it? Lord, am I willing to spend time away with you? Am I willing to, you know, take the Bible, dust it off, (coughs) blow out the pages, read prayerfully for understanding? Am I willing to take that time to pray with you? Even if I feel like I'm talking to myself, am I going to stay with it until my heart starts to open to you? Am I going to name and be fully aware of those things and those practices, those behaviors, those those places, uh, maybe even those people, huh? those programs on TV, maybe, which... Draw me further from you and sours my spirits. Lord, am I willing to cling to those things, those practices, those persons that fill me and reconnect me to your love, to the one true vine, to your Holy Spirit indwelling me? transforming me and through me all of those that I touch. Well, I hope I didn't trigger anybody. (laughs) Actually, 
I think my prayer should be, Lord, if I need trigger, and then please send the right person to do it. <sighs> send me the message, the messenger, that God incidence, that circumstance that will help me see my need for you. Dear Lord, let it be in Christ's name. Amen.